If you are interested in learning more about the Supreme Court, there's really no better way to do that than to read the opinions the justices write. But if you're a little new to reading SCOTUS opinions, the Public Information Office of the Supreme Court provides the public with helpful general information contained within the About the Court tab of the court's official website, supremecourt.gov. In the weeks ahead, I'll be reading some of that information in a series of four bonus episodes. The Supreme Court at Work, The Justices, History and Traditions, and an entire episode dedicated to the most helpful, frequently asked questions answered on the website. In today's episode, the first in the series, I'll be reading The Supreme Court at Work, a link to which is included in the episode description. Enjoy. The Supreme Court at Work Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution provides that the judges, both of the Supreme and Inferior Courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation, which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Constitutional Origin Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution provides that the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The Supreme Court of the United States was created in accordance with this provision and by authority of the Judiciary Act of September 24, 1789. It was organized on February 2, 1790. Jurisdiction According to the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2, the judicial power shall extend to all cases, in law and equity, arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made, under their authority to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states' citizens or subjects. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. 
appellate jurisdiction has been conferred upon the Supreme Court by various statutes under the authority given Congress by the Constitution. The basic statute effective at this time in conferring and controlling jurisdiction of the Supreme Court may be found in 28 U.S.C. Section 1251 and various special statutes. Rulemaking Power Congress has from time to time conferred upon the Supreme Court power to prescribe rules of procedure to be followed by the lower courts of the United States. The Term and Caseload The term of the court begins by law on the first Monday in October and lasts until the first Monday in October of the next year. Each term, approximately five to 7,000 new cases are filed in the Supreme Court. This is a substantially larger volume of cases than was presented to the court in the last century. In the 1950 term, for example, the court received only 1,195 new cases, and even as recently as the 1975 term, it received only 3,940. Plenary review with oral arguments by attorneys is currently granted in about 80 of those cases each term, and the court typically disposes of about 100 or more cases without plenary review. The publication of each term's written opinions, including concurring opinions, dissenting opinions, and orders, can take up thousands of pages. During the drafting process, some opinions may be revised a dozen or more times before they are announced. The Court and Constitutional Interpretation the Republic endures, and this is the symbol of its faith. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes, Cornerstone Address, Supreme Court Building Equal Justice Under Law These words, written above the main entrance to the Supreme Court Building, express the ultimate responsibility of the Supreme Court of the United States. The court is the highest tribunal in the nation for all cases and controversies arising under the Constitution or the laws of the United States. As the final arbiter of the law, the court is charged with ensuring the American people the promise of equal justice under law, and thereby also functions as guardian and interpreter of the Constitution. The Supreme Court is distinctly American in concept and function, as Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes observed. Few other courts in the world have the same authority of constitutional interpretation, and none have exercised it for as long or with as much influence. A century and a half ago, the French political observer Alexis de Tocqueville noted the unique position of the Supreme Court in the history of nations and of jurisprudence. Quote, the representative system of government has been adopted in several states of Europe, he remarked, 
but I am unaware that any nation of the globe has hitherto organized a judicial power in the same manner as the Americans. A more imposing judicial power was never constituted by any people. The unique position of the Supreme Court stems in large part from the deep commitment of the American people to the rule of law and to constitutional government. The United States has demonstrated an unprecedented determination to preserve and protect its written constitution, thereby providing the American experiment in democracy with the oldest written constitution still in force. The Constitution of the United States is a carefully balanced document. It is designed to provide for a national government sufficiently strong and flexible to meet the needs of the Republic, yet sufficiently limited and just to protect the guaranteed rights of citizens. It permits a balance between society's need for order and the individual's right to freedom. To assure these ends, the framers of the Constitution created three independent and co-equal branches of government. That this Constitution has provided continuous democratic government through the periodic stresses of more than two centuries illustrates the genius of the American system of government. The complex role of the Supreme Court in this system derives from its authority to invalidate legislation or executive actions, which, in the court's considered judgment, conflict with the Constitution. This power of judicial review has given the court a crucial responsibility in assuring individual rights, as well as in maintaining a living Constitution whose broad provisions are continually applied to complicated new situations. While the function of judicial review is not explicitly provided in the Constitution, it had been anticipated before the adoption of that document. Prior to 1789, state courts had already overturned legislative acts which conflicted with state constitutions. Moreover, many of the Founding Fathers expected the Supreme Court to assume this role in regard to the Constitution. Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, for example, had underlined the importance of judicial review in the Federalist Papers, which urged adoption of the Constitution. Hamilton had written that through the practice of judicial review, the court ensured that the will of the whole people, as expressed in their Constitution, would be supreme over the will of a legislature whose statutes might express only the temporary will of part of the people. And Madison had written that constitutional interpretation must be left to the reasoned judgment of independent judges, rather than to the tumult and conflict of the political process. If every constitutional question were to be decided by public political bargaining, Madison argued, the Constitution would be reduced to a battleground of competing factions, political passion, and partisan spirit. Despite this background, the Court's power of judicial review was not confirmed until 1803 when it was invoked by Chief Justice John Marshall in Marbury v. Madison. 
In this decision, the Chief Justice asserted that the Supreme Court's responsibility to overturn unconstitutional legislation was a necessary consequence of its sworn duty to uphold the Constitution. That oath could not be fulfilled any other way. It is emphatically the province of the Judicial Department to say what the law is, he declared. In retrospect, it is evident that the constitutional interpretation and application were made necessary by the very nature of the Constitution. The Founding Fathers had wisely worded that document in rather general terms, leaving it open to future elaboration to meet changing conditions. As Chief Justice Marshall noted in McCulloch v. Maryland, a constitution that attempted to detail every aspect of its own application would partake of the prolixity of a legal code and could scarcely be embraced by the human mind. Its nature, therefore, requires that only its great outlines should be marked, its important objects designated, and the minor ingredients which compose those objects be deduced from the nature of the objects themselves. The Constitution limits the court to dealing with cases and controversies. John Jay, the first Chief Justice, clarified this restraint early in the court's history by declining to advise President George Washington on the constitutional implications of a proposed foreign policy decision. The court does not give advisory opinions. Rather, its function is limited only to deciding specific cases. The justices must exercise considerable discretion in deciding which cases to hear, since approximately seven to 8,000 civil and criminal cases are filed in the Supreme Court each year from the various state and federal courts. The Supreme Court also has original jurisdiction in a very small number of cases arising out of disputes between states or between a state and the federal government. When the Supreme Court rules on a constitutional issue, that judgment is virtually final. Its decisions can be altered only by the rarely used procedure of constitutional amendment or by a new ruling of the court. However, when the court interprets a statute, new legislative action can be taken. Chief Justice Marshall expressed the challenge which the Supreme Court faces in maintaining free government by noting, We must never forget that it is a constitution we are expounding, intended to endure for ages to come, and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. The Court and Its Procedures a term of the Supreme Court begins by statute on the first Monday in October. Usually, court sessions continue until late June or early July. The term is divided between sittings, when the justices hear cases and deliver opinions, and intervening recesses, when they consider the business before the court and write opinions. Sittings and recesses alternate at approximately two-week intervals. With rare exceptions, 
Each side is allowed 30 minutes argument, and up to 24 cases may be argued at one sitting. Since the majority of cases involve the review of a decision of some other court, there is no jury and no witnesses are heard. For each case, the court has before it a record of prior proceedings and printed briefs containing the arguments of each side. During the intervening recess period, the justices study the argued and forthcoming cases and work on their opinions. Each week, the justices must also evaluate approximately 130 petitions seeking review of judgments of state and federal courts to determine which cases are to be granted full review with oral arguments by attorneys. When the court is sitting, public sessions begin promptly at 10 a.m. and conclude at noon, with occasional afternoon sessions scheduled as necessary. No public sessions are held on Thursdays or Fridays. On Fridays, during and preceding argument weeks, the justices meet to discuss the argued cases and to discuss and vote on petitions for review. When the court is in session, the 10 a.m. entrance of the justices into the courtroom is announced by the marshal. Those present at the sound of the gavel arise and remain standing until the robed justices are seated, following the traditional cry, The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States, Oye, Oye, Oye. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Prior to hearing oral argument, other business of the court is transacted. On Monday mornings, this includes the release of an order list, a public report of court actions, including the acceptance and rejection of cases, and the admission of new members to the court bar. Opinions are typically released on Tuesday and Wednesday mornings, and on the third Monday of each sitting, when the court takes the bench, but no arguments are heard. The court maintains this schedule each term until all cases ready for submission have been heard and decided. In May and June, the court sits only to announce orders and opinions. The court recesses at the end of June, but the work of the justices is unceasing. During the summer, they continue to analyze new petitions for review, consider motions and applications, and must make preparations for cases scheduled for fall argument. We've come to the end of the episode. Until next time, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.